9, 12, 10, 28, 2, 23. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello and welcome to another episode of Deep State Radio. It is 2019 and we are talking about our predictions for the year ahead. I am David Rothkopf and I am in New York City, in London, England, central London, England, foggy, misty, cold central London, England, is not (laughs) Sherlock Holmes, as you might expect, Um, is Corey Shockey, whose laugh comes out of the fog uh, in a comforting kind of way. Um, uh, in no way does it sound like the Hounds of the Baskerville, for example. Uh, uh, also joining us from Washington, D.C., we have Rosa Brooks of Georgetown University. We have David Sanger. Hello, David. Well, hello, Rosa. Uh, we have uh, D- uh, David Sanger of the New York Times. Who's Hello, David. Hello, Rosa. Hello, Corey, and anybody else on the line. What is going on here? You know, th- that voice. Hello, hello, snack. You, you guys, yes, snack, deep state dog. Um, David, I've never heard you sound more like sort of Henny Youngman there. Hello. Yeah, it's like, um, or Jackie Mason or something like that. And somewhere is Ed Luce, who's off um, um, I'm making a cup of coffee, but I'll be joining us momentarily, uh, as he is wont to do. In our last episode, we talked about predictions for 2019 for the rest of the world. But of course, the big prediction everybody's really interested in for 2019 is what happens to the um, uh, bumptious presidency of our bumptious president, Donald J. Trump, and to his administration and to the United States and to the uh, uh, Republic and and all of us. And so I just thought we'd start by going around and getting ready. There's Ed Luce coming that, in. It's, it's showing up with my uh, with my uh, latte right now. Yeah. <laughs> Wait, Ed delivers latte to you and not me? I You didn't know this? Man, doggone it. <laughs> Ed, I'm, I'm back with my espresso. Ed, don't you have retainers in central London who can wait on Corey much as your staff does on you <laughs> at stately loose manner? We have bi- a bike courier service. It's, yeah. uh, it's, a, it's a modern, a modern cheese, cheese on wheels. Yeah, it's, it's like those uh, uh, lunch wallas in, in, in India, right? That send out fantastically complicated lunch. To, well, never mind. We, we and and they have a six sigma record of accuracy. <laughs> exactly. It's a very, you know, there's this very good movie made about that. Anyway, Corey, start us off. What's going to happen to Trump? Everybody wants to know. Put them out of their misery. Tell them what's going to happen this year, so we can all, you know, just go back to uh, watching cartoons on television. I have no idea what will happen to the president this year. Um, uh, I do see two trend lines. One is that he is making both personnel and policy choices that um, that further enable him doing what he wants to do, what he campaigned on doing, and what uh, former Secretary of State Tillerson 
said in an interview a couple of weeks ago was very often determined to be illegal. And so I think um, a lot is going to be needed of the guardians of democracy in our republic this year, by which I mean to say all of our citizenry, um, because we, just as we should not outsource our judgment on national security to the military or to veterans, we ought not to expect uh, journalists like those magnificent ones on this deep state radio team to be our only, the only guardians of law and democracy in the United States. We all need to do our job. And a lot's going to be demanded of us as the president becomes more and more emboldened to be able to do what he wants. The second thing I think will happen this year is that um, Americans will have a big choice to make about whether whatever the Mueller investigation reveals about what the appropriate uh, political or legal um, remedies are for the president's behavior and the behavior of the people around him. Uh, I I do predict the president will get more erratic as things go on, both because he he every time there's about to be a major revelation coming from the Mueller investigation, the president does something unhinged. And given that we are about to get a whole lot of revelations, I think he's going to grow more and more unhinged. Um, that sounds very reasonable to me. David, you're a, a journalist who's protecting America. You're at the front lines. Uh, maybe you periodically peer over the barricade and have some view as to what's going to happen next. What's going to happen this year? Um, well, first, on the president himself, I think he will still be president at the uh, end of the year. Uh, I think that the closer that we get to the 2020 election, the more there is going to be a sense that whatever his future is should be decided at the ballot box and not um, in an impeachment. Uh, that could be upended. I could end up on that same list that uh, you and Ed were on, David, uh, of bad predictions. Uh, if Mueller has some uh, very major revelation. But I don't see a situation in which the Republicans in the Senate abandon the president between now and Election Day. I could imagine a scenario in which, if the news out of the Mueller investigation was particularly damning, that they begin to move to a position of not supporting him for re-election and then see whether or not he chooses uh, to run or not. Um, on the journalism side of this, I would say that you're going to see an increasing strain between those of us, including, I think, my colleagues at the New York Times, who believe it is extremely important that we not be seen as the journal of the resistance, but instead maintain our constitutional responsibility, be extremely tough-minded, be very strong on holding the president accountable, do deep, thorough investigatory work, as we in the Post and the Wall Street Journal and many others have done, um, but not be in the vanguard of advocating uh, a particular outcome here. Well, yeah, of course not. But you know that part of part of the argument that you sometimes hear is, 
you know, people need to be even handed. But if the, but facts are facts, right? I mean, your job facts is to report facts the facts. And, 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 and we're out there to put the facts uh, out there as we have just about every week uh, in the past year and in the first week and a half of 2019. Yes, exactly right. Um, well, Ed, um, what's your outlook on the big case that's on everyone's mind? Well, I agree with David that Trump's likely to be um, in office at the end of 2019. Uh, oh, I, think, I see. So you're uh, reversing your... I thought you were rolling forward your prediction from last year. No, no, no. My prediction was... Which is, which is something that happens in the house. Uh, uh, that's not going to remove him from office. Impeachment he has fed his prediction to your dog. Wow. Yeah, exactly. wow. Uh, but, but there's a difference between impeachment and removal, as, as um, a couple of America's presidents can attest. Uh, the um, I think he'll be there. I think that we're about to begin the longest year of our lives, which ends in November 2020, uh, and that the campaign has, in effect, already begun. But I'd rather focus my prediction on where the Democrats are going to go um, in their presidential uh, nomination contests. And, uh, and I think that what we're going to see in 2019 is a year of rising economic populism. Uh, I think people like Elizabeth Warren, um, Sherrod Brown, and others who are seeing the reaction and the enthusiasm that that Warren's getting early on are going to are going to cotton on to the economic populist line. I think if they look at the opinion polls, which they are, not just listen to the liberal grassroots, but look at the opinion polls, they will see quite strong, um, quite strong support for um, uh, Medicare for all, for some kind of um, generalized healthcare provision. They'll see quite strong support for uh, something along the lines of um, a, a, a much higher federal minimum wage for jobs guarantee measures um, and for um, stronger regulation of Silicon Valley. So I think that the direction that the Democrats are gonna go is a decisively anti-Clintonite one and an anti-Obama one for that matter. It's going to move to the left and that um, this will set up an extremely interesting contest in 2020 with, with Donald Trump. By the way, I agree with that completely. I think that the, the reality is that since Reagan, every administration has essentially adopted the economic formulas offered by Wall Street and by big corporations and including the Clinton administration in which I served and believe in which you also served, Ed. Um, and uh, uh, they focused on macroeconomic prescriptions that were very market-oriented. And throughout that period, inequality grew in the United States and economic insecurity grew. Uh, and today, with 50% of Americans with less than $400 in savings uh, and the next uh, major illness likely to bankrupt uh, all of those people and bankruptcy uh, being driven primarily by healthcare failures, uh, retirement systems on the verge of collapse, uh, and most of the benefits of the recent uh, long-term recovery going to the top 1%. I think you're actually going to see a return in the Democratic Party to economic metrics, which are not macro in the sense of top-line um, uh, performance metrics like GDP or market um, uh, levels, but are, are how's the middle class doing? 
How does the middle class benefit? How do most Americans benefit? What are the tangible benefits to them? And I think that's going to lead to precisely the kind of policies um, that um, uh, Ed has talked about. And I, I would I would add that you know Alexandria Ocasio Cortez, who is 29 years old and a new member of Congress and has made many gaffes as well as many striking positive statements. Uh, has has really sort of done something quite remarkable in the course of the past uh, week or two, where all of a sudden you're having a discussion in the United States, which was largely sparked by her, about whether it is um, sensible to return to a 70% marginal tax rate, as was the case during the Reagan administration. Um, and it's led to all a bunch of demagoguery and frightening, frightened responses on the part of the traditional forces in Washington. But um, something's changing. And I think, you know, one of the big things we're going to see during 2019 is the rise of a Democratic Party that is far more middle class oriented um, and average person oriented and far less Wall Street and big business oriented than we've seen recently. Um, I think you're right, David. What? Absolutely right. Absolutely right. Okay, um, again, timestamp. Time st- yeah. Um, well, I'm sorry. I, we're just I, filling actually, our we're filling our I, I quota do, of these your rights for January. So, <laughs> like, don't get your hopes up for February for 2019. <laughs> yeah, I think I, do, I think we're already at 200 percent of quota. But go ahead. I was just going to say I do think that this is this is the Trump silver lining, and whether we as a nation make good use of it or or blow it remains to be seen. But I think that there are all kinds of ways in which, you know, it's, it's kind of an exciting moment as well as a very frightening moment because all a lot of the the verities of American politics have been challenged and shaken up. And we're, you know, on the one hand, the, we're having all these conversations that many of us see as very alarming, like what good are our alliances? Who cares? What do we care about NATO? Should we care about it? But, you know, but we're also having these conversations like, why don't we have a 70% tax, you know, on, on wealth? And, and, and those are the right conversations to have. All of them are the right conversations to have, you know, to, to be saying, let's take a really hard look at all of the assumptions of sort of the, the centrist political classes in both parties have had for decades and ask ourselves if that actually makes any sense. And some of them are going to make sense. You know, some of them do make sense. But we it, it's I, I think it's great that those conversations are, are occurring. I hope that we manage to have them in a way that doesn't end up being as catastrophic for the Democratic Party as those conversations have been for the Republican Party internally. Uh, yeah, well said, and I hope- Rosa. Yeah, and I hope that it becomes a, a turning point, um, a turning point for the country, uh, because certainly it's not just Trump. It's it's a it's a longer term uh, error, which, by the way, I think may well get uh, attributed to the uh, baby boom presidents as an error all of them shared, um, uh, and hopefully with some luck we will move beyond that group uh, as we go into 2020. Um, Corey, as we look ahead over this year, we have a very, very dysfunctional government that's seen a lot of people leave. Um, I know one area that you've looked at closely is the Civ Mill side of this thing. And we just had the Secretary of Defense leave, and we now have a guy who's acting secretary uh, who's a Boeing executive, uh, just like we have a former coal executive running the EPA and 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 so forth. Um, 
And I'm just wondering, what do you see as sort of the future on the Civ Mill side throughout 2019, given this turmoil? Well, I don't have any objection to an executive from a major corporation coming in to service in the Defense Department, because after all, the DOD is a $700 billion a year business, and somebody who knows how to operate and manage at that scale um, is a net gain. And we have lots and lots of legislation and reporting requirements in place to ensure that they can't um, clandestinely benefit the business that they came from. What is a lot more worrying to me about the acting Secretary of Defense is that at the president's cabinet meeting slash press conference a couple of days ago, um, Shanahan sat there smug and smiling while the president of the United States, the commander in chief, further undercut the norms of civil military relations in the United States. Um, and so I think the president now, with the honorable exception of the director of national intelligence, Dan Coates, every other person in the cabinet is complicit in the president's behavior. Um, and that's terrible for civil military relations. What the president is doing is trying to destroy, to the extent the president has a strategy, David, before you. <laughs> He may not have a strategy, but he has certain primordial political instincts. Yeah. And one of those. Yeah, that's good. One of those primordial political instincts is to try and separate um, accredited leaders in a profession or a field of endeavor from the rank and file and to pose himself as the real true voice of the rank and file. That is. You know, um, that uh, veterans who held high ranks are betrayed the, the rank and file military. Therefore, you know, what did Mattis ever do in Afghanistan? Uh, that kind of thing. And the way when he went to I Iraq, thought it was, what did Mattis ever do for me? <laughs> that, that was, in fact, what he said. Um, and the president's behavior in front of active duty troops, giving campaign speeches and encouraging undisciplined behavior in, in respect of civil military relations. That's really terrible. And Shanahan's complicit in it instead of policing it. And, and I expect that's gonna get a lot worse as the president feels that the, uh, ground beneath his feet getting less and less solid. Yeah, on the other hand, a lot of people are leaving the administration, David, and it leaves in their place this kind of detritus of, you know, the D-listers, the E-listers, of whom the president demands a certain degree of, uh, you know, obsequiousness, as we saw with the acting attorney general who went into this kind of profuse uh, a celebration of the president's virtues for not going to Mar-a-Lago over the holidays. And I'm just wondering, during the course of this year, will we discover that any member of the president's cabinet actually now lives in his duodenum? Mm. That's an interesting question. So I thought the Again, has... a visual I did not need. <laughs> Yes. Yeah, I was. I, uh, I would. I yeah. would agree, David. I was trying. I thought of a number of ways to say that, Corey, and I was trying to do it. 
with a more formal name so that I'm you would very grateful that was that was the most polite euphemism possible it, 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 it could have been worse but let's, self, David. <laughs> yeah, let's ban let's ban the image um so I thought the president said something really interesting out as he was waiting for the helicopter uh, to Camp David or back over the weekend. He was asked about the acting positions, and he said, I like acting. It leaves me with a lot of flexibility. You know what I mean? Well, we know what he means, which is two things happen when you're in acting. First of all, you don't have much authority independently up on the hill to ask for budget, to argue a policy position, because you're acting, right? Um, so nobody on the hill is going to seriously negotiate with you. No ally may seriously work with you. Uh, that leaves President Trump as a government of one, which is sort of where he wants to be with these. The second is it leaves the acting completely in the president's hand because um, that acting has got to think, gee, do I have a shot of being nominated for the real job? If I don't have a shot of being nominated for the real job, do I want to continue in my acting role for a while? Because it's a lot of fun that, you know, you, you get this limousine and um, people treat you with respect and maybe some days they forget to call you acting. So um, I think that you're going to see the president in no rush to replace many of the actings out here. Cool. Um, Rosa, are, are you are you there? Are you yes. Listening? Okay, so Rosa, you're supposed to say David Sanger was completely right. <laughs> David <laughs> Sanger was completely right. No, I just didn't get off mute in time to say that, David. Oh, okay, well, so, David so, Sanger is completely right. Okay, so here I have a question about what David has just said. Yeah. What about the Constitution? Yes, what about it? Well, doesn't it require that cabinet secretaries get approved? And isn't the part of the idea that the legislative branch has some oversight and isn't putting <laughs> a bunch of actings into place a kind of way to uh, circumvent or subvert the Constitution? Or am I just naive? Well, there is no, you're not. No, you're not totally naive. But it's so first of all, I should say I, it's not an area of law that I know a ton about. Um, but did my, you notice you slipped the word totally into that sentence? Anybody else yes. pick that up? Yeah, thank <laughs> you. Totally. This, this is not my first rodeo. Totally. totally. <laughs> um, you know, my, my understanding and this, some, some deep state radio listener who's an admin law specialist may, may say that this is wrong, but, but my understanding is that yes, um, he is supposed to, in a, you know, with all deliberate speed, um, request Senate advice and consent and so forth um, on his nominees. And that in a sort of theoretical sense, failure to do that, just putting in somebody as acting and never never getting around to asking for a Senate vote um, would be in inappropriate, constitutionally inappropriate. But I think uh, my impression is that it's one of those areas of law where doing anything about this would be next to impossible. Um, you know, that it's a dispute between the political branches that the executive branch could always say, well, we were going to any day now, we were just wrapping up some additional stuff, you know, research we had to do. And I suppose the Senate could always hold its own vote with or without the executive branch coming forward. But but I say all this with some hesitation because I don't know that much about it. I mean, if, if the, the broader question 
as usual, is forget the Constitution, with which we are far too uh, obsessed. You know, we treat it like it's uh, revealed truth from God. Um, I think the more the more important question is not is there a constitutional problem here. The more important question is just you know does this violate basic core norms of democratic accountability? To which the answer is clearly yes, it does. Uh, yeah, right. Um, but Ed, we do have something which we haven't actually talked about as we're looking ahead to 2019, which we did not have last year, and that is a democratic. House of Representatives with a Democratic speaker who is canny and has really kind of been pitch perfect politically thus far, and a bunch of Democratic committee chairs who seem as though they would challenge some of these abnormalities, not to mention crimes and corruption and lies and all sorts of other things. And I'm wondering, are we overestimating the effect that 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 having the Dems in the House are, is going to produce, or not? Um, yeah, I mean, it depends which estimation you're asking me to to respond to. I I think that that Pelosi, as you rightly say, has been pitch perfect um, so far. Her inclination is not to get ahead of uh, the Mueller investigation, and we're clearly, you know, we're, we're awaiting the final act of that. Uh, and there's a lot of stuff that was sort of bunched up that he didn't didn't uh, move on publicly during the midterm, some of which has come out subsequently, but I suspect a lot more of which um, is going to come out in the following weeks. Um, for what it's worth, um, I, I spent um, a couple of hours um, the other day um, with a former very senior strategic advisor to Trump with whom he's fallen out. Um, but it was off the record, so I can't I can't mention who it was. Um, and um, his prediction. What does his last name rhyme with? Just uh, um, it's some uh, those things that you used to fire in medieval wars. Um, <laughs> that would be, no, I think he means trebuchet. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah. No, there was there was there was there was, um, uh, there was no there was no less subtle hint than that available. Um, but the um, uh, his prediction is that there is such uh, such a, a clusterfuck of um, uh, of different investigations now um, uh, on Trump that that they're getting so close to the bone. Um, uh, and that the Mueller report's going to be so strong and its final flurry of indictments or next flurry of indictments are going to be so damning and get so close to the president um, that at some point the president is going to be tempted to take a deal um, that will give him immunity from prosecution. Uh, it would obviously have to be a deal that would include the Southern District of New, New York, not just the special counsel, um, uh, and that would also protect his assets and his brand. Um, and I don't think, you know, um, since we're in the prediction business, um, uh, I don't think that that scenario can be ruled out. If Trump really feels all that is at risk and he can be given a way out um, that, that essentially gives him impunity, then um, that, that cannot be ruled out. Um, as for Pelosi, I think she will wait to see what the investigation does. Uh, there is so much more to, to do in terms of 
holding um, the, the great departments of the federal government to account of in, investigating conflicts of interest, um, of looking into abuse of, of power and of spending and of, uh, and of uh, the number of lobbyists um, you know, who are running government departments now. Uh, and then, of course, there is the, um, the, the big battle, I think, that Richie Neal, the chairman of the Ways and Means, House Ways and Means Committee, is going to embark upon to subpoena, subpoena Trump's tax records. All of that will be plenty, um, uh, plenty for uh, a Democratic House to do, plenty for Pelosi to manage without her getting ahead of the special counsel. Corey, all of this has got to have an effect on how the rest of the world looks at us. I mean, we look like, if you take the sum total of everything that we've just said here, you've got the House, you've got 17 investigations, you've got Trump getting more out of control, you've got the better quality of his advisors leaving, a worse quality of his advisors in place, you've got a looming 2020 election. It looks like a year of real chaos in American politics. Um, as you talk to people overseas and and as you anticipate the year ahead, do you think you know America's just going to sort of be on the sidelines, out of it, not engaged, um, and 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 weakened by all of this? Well, we're certainly weakened by it. And we're certainly likely to be self-absorbed. Uh, the problem for the rest of the world is that U.S. action or inaction are both so consequential because of the breadth of our power in the international order and because of our role as the rule setter and enforcer of the international order that emerged after 1945. The problem for the rest of the world is that both American action and American inaction affects them, and they can't afford to not account for the possibilities. So I just finished writing a little book for the Penguin imprint at the Lowy Institute about whether the liberal order could be sustained against American opposition. And, and it can, the cooperation among the middle powers who are liberal. So all of America's allies around the world, basically, but especially in Europe, especially Australia, Japan, South Korea, that those countries cooperating can buy a lot of time. I mean, unless China provokes an actual shooting war with the United States, those countries led by Canada, led by Australia, led by Germany, can probably buy a decade for the U.S. to right itself. And one of the really great things about the tumultuousness of democracy in America is that we get a lot wrong, but we also have the capacity to fix it. So, uh, yes, everybody's terrified by the ditch we have dug ourselves into and the uh, indifference we have to the consequences for other people's security, for other people's prosperity that our choices have. But we also have the capacity to right ourselves very quickly. In fact, more quickly than most other political systems where the parliamentary systems where the leadership is all of the same political persuasion. So it matters that Democrats took the House. 
it matters what civil society will do um, in the next two years. And it really matters a whole lot that we show ourselves capable of solving our problems. You know, David, as I think about it, one of the things that's interesting is in the past two weeks, a new Congress has come in that has 100 women in it and that is on average 10 years old, younger than the preceding Congress. And it seems like one of the bigger it's a lot sort more of, colorful, as we learned in the course of their discussions in the past couple of days. Yeah, You're referring to the language of the... Yeah. yeah. But, but, and the dancing and, and the all of that. And the, and the dancing, yeah. Yeah, but 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 it it looks a lot more like America. It's still, mm -hmm. you know, a long way off. But I'm wondering if there isn't a kind of big story in 2019, which is kind of a, a leadership change, that Trump is the last of the boomers and that this, this new crowd uh, is going to sort of dominate the discussion, uh, or at least hope to in the, in, in, in the Congress. And I just, I mean, you know, can, can we anticipate something like that? I'm not sure it's going to be a leadership change. It may be a little bit delayed. I mean, the the deal that Nancy Pelosi struck in order to uh, win the speakership back was that she would hold the job for four years. And that suggests to you that a significant change in Congress is only going to come at well after the presidential election, right around the time of the next um, midterms. I think that's probably good in that um, this group that has shown up in Congress has a lot of enthusiasm, but not a lot of experience yet. And in four years, they'll be well down the line to that. That now, to some of them, they think in sort of Trumpian terms, that means they will not be as disruptive. Uh, but the other way you could view that is that they'll have um, more of an understanding of how institutions operate. I think the big question that faces this group coming up is sort of twofold. One is uh, th this group, primarily the group of women who you refer to, are largely not entirely Democrats. I think part of what you're seeing play out right now is the battle for the soul of the Democratic Party and whether it is sort of on a um, uh, on, on the left, which is where a lot of the energy was, or whether it turns out to be in the middle. And that's the argument between whether somebody like Joe Biden is a nominee or uh, somebody uh, like Elizabeth Warren is on uh, is the nominee or or leading in that direction, and I think the second big leadership question is, can they get to some serious policy proposals that sort out some big issues uh, within the Democratic Party? If you had asked many young new Democrats during the Obama administration. Should we be out of Syria? Should we be out of Afghanistan? Should we be out of Iraq? The answer would have been hell yes, which puts them on largely the same side of the position as President Trump. And they've got to figure out an argument about how one uses American influence and power. I haven't heard that from the Democrats yet. Ed, as you look forward to 2019, what is the one subject you're afraid you're going to write about too much as a columnist? Trump. That's a one-word answer for you. I mean, you are, do, do your editors give you a hard time? Do they say, like, come on, there must be something else going on there? No, no. I, I, as I think I probably said before, Trump is quantitative easing for, for our profession. Um, <laughs> you know, he's lifted all asset prices. And now, there's an FT joke if I ever heard one. <laughs> <laughs> he is Witness QE5. the fact that 
that the networks are evidently prepared to carry the president's address um, Indeed. about the border crisis. And they well, should it's be. A a presidential, whether you agree with it or not, a presidential address. Well, they objected Obama. Yeah, no, Obama gave a speech on the same thing, and all, four networks said they wouldn't carry it. Uh, and they didn't. Uh, and what's more, when Obama gave a speech, he told the truth. And one thing we know about Trump is that he lies throughout his speeches. So by giving him a live platform, you actually give him the biggest chance to sort of sell his lies. Whereas if you tape delay it and you fact check it before you actually run it, you actually do a greater service to your audience. David, on this subject, you do not need to tape delay it in order to uh, be able to fact check it. We can fact check in real time. You saw that happen in the exchange between Won't Sarah Sanders. Won't you please tweet stream that, David? I want, yeah. I want your fact checking in real time. I'd love okay. to see it. Okay. And the, the second point is gets back to something I said earlier about how the media can't be uh, playing the role uh, of the resistance. And if the president wants to give a big speech on what's a big national issue, you give him the speech and you roll out your analysis right thereafter. And you do exactly what you said. But you want to treat this the way you would have treated it 30 years ago. Well, I, as I said, just as a reminder, that's not what happened with Obama. They didn't. They didn't do that with Obama. They put, didn't put him on the air. Um, and it, the, the 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 critical issue is: is the speech a speech of national importance, or is it a political speech? And if it's a political speech, um, giving him you know that platform uh, is sometimes not appropriate. How many but, Lyndon Johnson and Richard Nixon political speeches yeah. about Vietnam? got live national coverage. You know, that was 50 years ago. I'm really sorry to say it's just a different era, and it's also a very different breed of cat. That's my my, my view. Right. I, I agree Did with you. you it's a different cats? era. I agree it's a different breed of cat, and I think the way we handle it is the way we've always handled it. Okay, well, let's, let's wrap up. I'll go to you first, Rosa. As you look forward to 2019, you know, give us one of your New Year's resolutions or one of your predictions for yourself. Ooh, a New Year's resolution or prediction for myself. Um, well, I'm going to try to get over my Trump-induced writer's block in 2019. Uh, let, me, let me ask you one other thing. Don't you have a book you're supposed to finish this year? Yes, and I am going to also finish my goddamn book. Exactly. David, that proves that you have the ability to be Cruella DeVille. Uh, no. It's a terrible <laughs> thing to say to somebody who's writing a book they haven't finished. <laughs> uh, believe me, believe me, it strikes plenty close to home for me. Hey, uh, David, don't you have a book you're supposed to finish this year? Fuck you, David. <laughs> I'm almost certain you told me it was due in just a few months. Yeah, it's due actually <laughs> like four days ago. But oh. let's not let's not get overly hung up on that. I'm actually have two that I'm supposed to be finishing this year. So, so do you, how do you do that? Do you have like two laptops open and one hand on one keyboard and one on the other? Do you know? Amazingly, that is exactly how I do it. With my left hand, I write one book. With my right hand, I write another book. Sometimes I switch. Um, David, does that mean that your left book doesn't know what your right book is saying? 
yeah, <laughs> exactly. What, what about you, David? Do you have something coming in the year ahead that we should know about? Something you're looking forward to? Are you building a barn on Happy Acres in Vermont? What's going on? We yes. are, in fact, building a barn on Happy Acres in Vermont. It's being constructed as we speak. But, um, but uh, more to our deep state radio um, thoughts. There's a story kicking around that I think we haven't sort of discussed in our 2019 discussions, but may have more to do with our long-term um, happiness and well-being. It's the fracturing of the internet as we um, try to figure out whether China or the U.S. is going to deploy 5G and where, where whether or not we're going to ban the Chinese from our networks and they're going to continue to ban us from uh, many of theirs. I think it's the uh, argument about who's going to police the internet, whether or not the Facebooks and um, Googles of the world are going to be in a world of self-policing or whether we're going to begin to see more governments step in. I think you're going to see that on the issue of encryption as you see more and more governments demand that they be able to, uh, at least with a warrant and some without it, to get it um, at your material. You've already seen the Australians uh, say that they're going to ban uh, encryption that they cannot pierce or cannot be, they cannot have some form of, of legal access to. I think a lot of these, while not anywhere near as gripping as President Trump's future or uh, Brexit, are going to end up having a lot more long-term impact to um, the kind of world we're living in five or 10 years from now. Excellent one. Corey, this could be, you know, you want to throw one more in, fine. Or go back to my original question, which is, what's what? do you have something interesting planned for the year ahead that we should all know about? Uh, wow. And um, are you building a barn in central London? <laughs> I am not building a barn in central London because uh, my modest working women's equivalent to Ed's palatial a uh, country place is my sweet serene republic in Glen Ellen, California, which, uh, you know, has no heat in it. So I live in a barn back home. I don't need to live in a barn in central London. <laughs> yeah. uh, what do I have coming for the year? Oh, um, I would rather talk about great international policy, which is the big, vibrant debate that is just beginning about the liberal international order, because um, we have lived so long in the post-World War II order and with such extraordinarily high levels of security and prosperity that we are taking for granted something that we are chipping away at currently. And, and academics and policy types are starting to have a big argument about that, which I very fervently hope uh, will win the argument uh, and carry the argument out of our elite circles and onto college campuses and Kiwanis clubs and rotary lunches so that we actually persuade the American people of, of the position I earnestly believe is best for the country, which is sustaining an order that was uh, built from the ashes of fighting World War II in order that we not have to repeat those kind of enormous national efforts. Well, since that was your last book, Ed, surely you, you agree and think Corey is exactly right. 
Um, I do, but first of all, um, you know, uh, for 2019 on a personal level, I'm I'm hoping to cull the deer population on my estate because it's getting it's getting way too high. Um, I'm so glad you didn't say the cat population in your house because that's no. where I thought that was going in. No, no, no. he's Ed's been having a lot of problem with Robin of Loxley, who's. Like, <laughs> <laughs> or Ed, don't you have a team of hunters who do who do that for you? Yeah, indeed, I will give them instructions, um, a glass of brandy, and send them on their way. Um, the, uh, you know, it was ever thus. Um, the uh, uh, yes, indeed, that was. I mean, I am hoping um, to, to emulate most of you um, um, on on this podcast by writing a book in 2019, or at least commencing um, a book in 2019. Um, that would have the working title of something like putting Humpty together again. Uh, the, um, the feedback I've got from my recent two books is that the, the critique and the diagnosis is, is very bleak, um, but you're not recommending any solutions. And, I, and I'm sort of quite motivated to write a book about how we do restore the, both internationally is what Corey is talking about, the liberal international order, but also in terms of the health internally of liberal democracy, what is it that we need to do um, to recover ourselves? And and I'm, I, I, I've yet to get much further than that. And the title will probably be better than putting Humpty together again. Um, uh, but that's that's at least my aspiration for 2019. My, uh, my hope is that the early beginnings of, of um, this year and after some of the alarming events, weather events and reports from last year, that the early signs that global warming is going to be taken more seriously and will uh, rise up the political agenda do prove to be true because this is the overwhelming existential crisis um, that, that really outweighs all of the others put together. Totally true. Very important that we bring it up. We obviously, over the course of 2019, will do our very, very best to explore these and other issues. Um, it is always a lot of fun to do it with uh, these guys, Corey and Rosa and Ed and David, and we'll have some other guests in. And we'll also do our National Security Magazine one-on-one -on -one podcasts. And we have Washington for Beautiful People, which comes to you from the West Coast uh, and gives you a, a perspective of a bunch of people who are very active in shaping U.S. public opinion there. Uh, and there's more in store. So go to deepstateradionetwork.com, become a member, look around, give us a little bit of support, buy a mug, propose different ideas for mugs. I mean, David in the last episode suggested Deep State Dog have his own mug. I think that's a good <laughs> idea, but we'll uh, do, I think we could do one to save Ed Luce's cats, which would probably be nice. Um, um, save Ed Luce's cats and save the liberal international order. My, my yeah, daughter would in, order in that order. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, they, Ed Luce's daughter. Uh, Mimi will order 100,000 mugs that would, and we will be supported forever. Um, On Ed's uh, credit card, I hope. Oh, yeah. No, no, exactly. Um, and every member of Ed's retinue will carry one of those mugs. Uh, in in any event, uh, please join us there. Please do support us. We've got a lot going on. I'm really, really happy and excited to be back with you guys for this year. And um, we hope you will join us again very soon on Deep State Radio. Bye-bye. Deep State Radio is a production of the Deep State Radio Network, a division of TRG Interactive Media. Our podcast today was produced in cooperation with 
Goat Rodeo Productions and was supervised by Ian Enright. Join us again for another episode of Deep State Radio. If you don't, we know where to find you.